0: You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Friends, what do you do with your emotions? What do you do with your emotions? In general, most of us have been taught two different ways to respond to emotions when they come up in us. They form sort of a spectrum that most of the world tends to fit into. On one end of the spectrum, we're taught to stuff our emotions down. This is how I was taught in my family to deal with emotion oftentimes. You feel something in a tense or difficult situation, and you ignore it, or you hide it in some way, right? Keep that down, and don't reveal it. Uh, But there's another end of the spectrum. The other end is actually not... Putting your emotions in the back seat, like we do when we stuff it, it's actually putting them in the driver's seat. It's letting our emotions run wild, right? You feel something in a tense or difficult moment, and you just lead with everything you're feeling. Oftentimes, volume turns up to 11 in those situations, right? I have friends and family who were taught growing up that this is the way to reckon with emotions. Those people's dinner tables were often very, well, active places, right? Anger or tears or laughter and joy, it pours forth in every way when we put emotions in the driver's seat. But what's interesting is both of these responses that are common for us in our day, both of them are actually doing kind of the same thing. Both of these responses to emotions are actually allowing our emotions to dictate our stories, our realities. For instance, when we stuff emotion down, what we do is we bury it, and it can sort of get into the water, so to speak. When you bury something near a well, it gets into the water a little bit. And people who stuff emotion for a long time end up becoming bitter, resentful sort of people over years, right? because they've stuffed it down so much their emotions actually end up defining their story for them. And on the other end of the spectrum, if we put emotions in the driver's seat, a lot of times they can overwhelm us. They can take control of us if we're not careful. And we can have our stories defined by what we feel in any given moment. We can fluctuate, sometimes minute to minute, sometimes day to day. right? In both cases, our stories get defined by how we feel. Anytime we stuff emotion and anytime we put it in the driver's seat. And most of the world lives in this way. Most of the world lives with their emotions dictating their stories. That's why we get anxious over things like work or school and we're consumed by our anxiety. That's why we have resentment and anger and we harbor it in us, right? Because we're allowing our emotion to define our story. That's why we get sad and are defined by that sadness over other things happening in the world or over... Our life circumstances. That's why we get broken up about our own sin, right? the ways we've harmed others or the ways others have harmed us. Because we can only visualize a world that are dictated, that's dictated by our emotion. It's the only reality we can picture when we stuff or when we put it in the driver's seat. But what's interesting is the Bible actually teaches us a different approach to emotion. It's sort of a, a middle way between these two ends of the spectrum. It does, to be clear, give emotion a primary role in our lives. Emotion is important in the Bible. But it teaches us not to deny or stuff emotion and not to let it overtake us so that we lose control. The Bible teaches us instead to pray through our emotions. And that sort of prayer isn't sentimental and it's not cliche. It's actually this really deep and intentional reckoning with what's going on in us, the deepest parts of ourselves. It's a way of understanding the experiences and the traumas that we faced in our lives. It's a way of bringing that whole mess of things together before God, allowing him to witness it. And when we do that in prayer, something powerful starts to happen. When we do that, we start to be invited into a different story by God. This sort of picture of prayer is actually what the Bible tells us all about prayer. There's a book of the Psalms, uh, 150 poems right in the middle of our scriptures that help us understand this approach to emotion through prayer. Uh, There's a theologian named John Calvin who called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. You guys remember those anatomy pictures of the human body, right, with muscles and sinews and bones? John Calvin said the Psalms are that sort of picture for your soul, the deepest parts of your being. It includes all of your griefs and all of your hopes and all of your despairs and all of your sorrows and all of your joys. All of it is located in these poems. And they've helped Christians pray through their emotion for thousands of years. It helped people before Christianity was even around, the Jewish faith. This was a central part of their belief system. And that sort of prayer, authentic, just everything out there for God to see, that's often not how we picture prayer in the church, right? Don't we often come into prayer thinking we kind of have to tiptoe our way around? We have to say the right words in the right ways at the right times. It's this holy exercise. That's not how the Bible pictures prayer, There are certain tips and uh, tools that the Bible gives us, but those tools are intended to be used in authenticity, in vulnerability, in honesty, not in posturing ourselves before God. And when we do that, we see God inviting us into a different sort of story that redefines the harm and the pain that we've experienced, the brokenness that we know. And he's rewriting that into a different sort of story, a story of redemption, of grace, of love, and of beauty. And there's an implicit assumption underneath this practice of prayer. The assumption is that we are fundamentally dependent people. We are dependent people. and We don't love to hear that, especially after Independence Day, right? A day that celebrates how independent we are in our world. That's why we want to actually go through this series. Over the next three weeks, we're calling this Dependence. The hope for this series is that we're going to examine the Psalms and connect them to a different spiritual song or hymn that Christians have sung for a long time. And we're going to remind ourselves that we are dependent sorts of people, and that when, when we practice that dependence before God in prayer, when we bring ourselves fully before God in prayer, he starts to reshape our stories. He starts to make us into different sorts of people that experience life and redemption and grace rather than brokenness and hardship and pain. And so today, uh, we're going to look at how the Psalms teach us to navigate distress and suffering in our world, how we go through it. And The psalm today, Psalm 124, teaches us remembrance, remembrance as the way to navigate our distress. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me uh, to Psalm 124. Uh, If you're flipping through your Bibles, the Psalms are one of the biggest uh, books in the Bible. They're right in the middle. So if you flip in the middle, you're probably going to land in Psalms. Uh, Go to Psalm 124. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, let me know after church. We'll get you one for free. It's on us. We want you to be able to read with us on Sundays and read on your own time. We're going to have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along there as well. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when our enemies attacked us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We've escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we've escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who has made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Those of you that had a physical Bible out, you likely noticed a couple words right at the start of this psalm before the poetry begins. You notice those words? They're in italics. Anybody see them? Know what they said? Who wants to be the right answer? Give me a right answer. What are the italicized words? A song of a sense, which is an interesting thing. That those words are there actually to help us understand the context in which people sung or used this poetry back in the day. It's giving us uh, kind of the, the uh, life and perspective of the original audience. This psalm comes right in the middle of a group of 15 psalms. They're all called psalms of ascent, from 120 to 134. And they're called that because they were sung by Jewish pilgrims who were ascending to Jerusalem for particular feasts or festivals. Jerusalem was an elevated city. It sat above much of the world around it, sort of on a hill. So they would ascend and sing these songs, quite literally, as they ascended. These were practices of remembrance for them. They were reflecting genuinely on what had happened in their lives, honestly reflecting on what had happened And then reflecting on what God had been doing in the midst of what had happened for them. And looking at the pain and the agony they had faced and then examining what God had done in the midst of it. And right here, this psalm is teaching us that this prayer of remembrance is actually a way to navigate distress for us when we face it in our lives. That remembrance is a practical way to navigate the emotions that come with pain and suffering in our lives. And it helps us do this in three main ways. Remembrance helps us see our distress or suffering clearly. It helps us see ourselves clearly. And it helps us see God clearly. It helps us see our distress clearly, ourselves clearly, and God clearly. First, our distress. A few years back, uh, when I was in youth group at a, a church I attended growing up, I went to a camp in San Diego, California. And uh, some buddies of mine uh, and, and myself were all hanging out on the beach. We decided to go out and boogie board. Uh, which is a classic thing. It's not too dangerous, but still feels fun and Mm -hmm. exhilarating. And so we're sitting out in the ocean, and we, with our not fully formed brains yet, decided to get our boogie boards as close together as possible, sort of form a racetrack to get to the shore as quickly as possible. We thought we'd ride in all at the same time, and we could throw elbows if we needed to, but there'd be one winner at the end who won the race to the shore. And so we did this. We got as close together as possible, and we're waiting for these waves to come in. If you haven't boogie boarded before, the, the goal is to get and, and hit the wave and ride it in as soon as it breaks. As soon as the, the foam starts to break on the top, then you ride that wave in. And so we're waiting for this wave, and a huge one comes. It probably wasn't actually that big. I was a little kid. But it, it seemed huge, right? Five, seven feet, maybe. And so we're, we're getting ready to ride this wave in. I'm bracing for when it's going to break, and as soon as it does, I push off. And when I do, my friend didn't obey the rules. He was diagonally faced instead of facing straight toward the shore. So he pushes off as well, runs his body and boogie board right into me, knocks me off mine, and I am now flailing in the ocean. And because the other person next to me obeyed the rules, I was now stuck under his boogie board because he continued to go straight. And the undertow was pulling me. It was a strong current that day. I was freaking out, you guys. I'd never been through something like this. I was being rolled around. My lungs were feeling pressure, salt stinging my eyes. My eyes. This wave that I thought I was going to be able to handle, I couldn't. It was much stronger than I anticipated. And in the middle of flailing my arms around, I feel someone grab my wrist and help pull me up back to the surface. And I like, breathe air in, like, what the heck happened? I have no idea. And this was a true friend uh, who saw what had happened, hopped off his big board and helped me get out of the ocean, make sure I was okay. The psalmist in Psalm 124 here is describing a similar sort of situation. A situation where water is overwhelming us, where our distress feels poetically like water infringing upon us. He uses language like, it swallowed us up. Right? The suffering and distress he's talking about is like being swallowed, suffocated by water, which many of us understand in moments of distress, right? Have you ever felt that it's hard to breathe sometimes? Your pulse starts to race. He uses the language of a flood sweeping us away. He says a flood would have swept us away. Suffering in distress is like a flood of water overwhelming us. We know this really well, too. We actually use similar language. We say we're drowning in something, right? drowning in work or drowning in uh, pain or drowning in any sort of emotion. And then he switches from a flood to torrents. He's kind of moving towards rushing river rapids. That's the image he wants us to see. He's saying suffering and distress is like a river rapid that can sweep you away. Many of us have experienced this as well. We've been standing and fighting all of the pain, the difficulty in our lives, and eventually it just breaks us. Eventually it just sweeps us away. See, These images are actually pretty universal. We can understand pretty clearly what the psalmist is getting at, even though he lived thousands of years ago and is talking about something very different. These are metaphors that are applicable to each of us. But one thing we want to remember here is that doesn't make the metaphors sentimental. It doesn't make the metaphors ambiguous. The psalmist is talking about real pain and suffering here. And we have to remember that, because we sing songs a lot of times that use images like this, and sometimes we can kind of make them only metaphors, right? We can sing about them as if they're ethereal and not connected to what we're going through. The psalmist and the people singing this psalm were really suffering. Many scholars think that this would have been sung by people returning from one of the most traumatic experiences of their lives, the Babylonian exile. This was a time when the city of Jerusalem had been infringed upon by an enemy empire, the empire of Babylon. This was a war-torn time, an oppressive time. They were ripped from their homes, they were put into chains, and they were taken off to a foreign land. These are not people who are uh, positive, encouraging, K-love sort of people. These aren't people who are like, ah, good vibes only, right? We're, we're good with it, right? These are people who went through it. These words are from the mouths of distressed people who are well acquainted with the pain of being human. But notice what they're doing with their death and their suffering, their distress. They're not stuffing it, and they're not letting the emotions dictate everything for them. They're not putting them in the front seat. They're praying through it. And this is what remembrance helps us do here. Remembrance helps us see our distress clearly by helping us name it. When we remember what we've been through, we can clearly name what the distress has looked like. You guys, God and the Bible don't ever teach us to overlook pain and suffering or to breeze by it or to just say, well, get over it, right? Or come up with a reason for it to explain it away. That's not what we do here. We always are serious about the pain that we go through, the distress that we feel in the middle of it. We grieve it. And that's important for every single one of us in this room because we all arrive with distress in our lives somewhere. Something in your head right now comes to mind, right? I don't know exactly what it is for you. Maybe it's divorce or abuse in your family somewhere. Maybe it's pain or illness that keeps coming back. Maybe it's anxiety from work. Maybe your life just isn't quite going the way you thought it would. Maybe it's a relationship you want to be with him or her, or you are with him or her and it's not going the way you want it to. We don't know exactly, but there's distress in all of our lives. Maybe just getting out of bed in the morning feels impossible. Friends, being a human is real hard. It's hard. We are broken people living in a broken world, and we feel the weight of our distress like water bearing down on us all the time. And the church is never a place where we show up and say everything's put together and great. We never show up here and say, my life is put together. If you show up here and say that, you're lying. No one has their life put together. None of us do. We're all here because of our brokenness. We're all here because we know we are broken people in need. The church is not a collection of people who get rid of the pains of the world and then just wait for God to swing by with a golf cart and take you up to the country club in the sky. That's not the picture of the church. Jordan liked that image. The church is only ever a place for those who have felt overwhelmed, for those who felt anxious, for those who've been hurt, for those who are in need. This place is a hospital for the broken, friends. That's why we do this every week. And that means there's nothing that's unmentionable in your life. Nothing. Now that doesn't mean you go and shout it out to everybody, right? There are Specific spaces where you develop trustworthy relationships with folks, where you can bring those things up, but God never says that any part of your life is unmentionable, and no one in this community will say that either. Every part of your life, every bit of your distress can be brought before God. To put it plainly, as the great Fred Rogers once said, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, those of you that don't already know, Fred Rogers said, anything that's human is mentionable, and anything that's mentionable can be more manageable. Anything that's human is mentionable. If you've experienced it, we can talk about it. And if we can talk about it, then we can start to manage it. That's what prayer helps us do. It helps us bring the whole of our lives to name our distress clearly. This practice of remembrance in Psalm 124 summarizes for us what it looks like to remember our distress, to clarify it and name it. But that's not the only way that it clarifies our distress for us. Notice, the author doesn't just talk about the distress They also talk about what God has been up to in it. The practice of remembrance isn't only naming the pain. It's also reflecting on the ways that God has been at work in the midst of the pain. Notice all of the suffering, all the flood and the torrents, those are all conditional. There's a conditional statement right at the start. It says, if the Lord had not been on our side, then all of this would have happened. Then we would have been overtaken. Then death would have won. But the Lord is on our side. And therefore, it didn't win. Remember, these are people who are reflecting back now on the exile in Babylon, and now they're on their way home. Babylon has been overcome. Babylon was defeated because the Lord is on their side. And so it doesn't, remember, it doesn't just help us get clarity on naming our distress. It also helps us get clarity on what God has done in the midst of it. And that's crucial for us as well because it's really rare that we get clarity on our distress in the moment. It's really rare that when we're in the midst of experiencing agonizing pain or suffering in our lives, it's very rare that we know exactly what God's going to do with it. It's very rare that we know exactly what's going to come of things, right? We can only understand that when we remember, when we look back. It's only in reflecting that we can recognize God's presence in our lives. That's what we practice together in the examine, reflecting where God has been at work. There's a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard who put it this way. He said, Life can only be understood looking backward, but it must be lived looking forward. It can only be understood looking backward, but it must be lived looking forward. And remembrance gives us clarity on what God has been doing in the past. It helps us look backward to see what God did in the midst of our previous distress. And then that actually enables us to encounter distress as different people today because we remember what God has done before. An example of this in my life. A uh, little over, let's see, a little under a decade ago, uh, my dad passed away from pancreatic cancer. I was a teenager when it happened, and it was one of the most distressing times in my life. One of the hardest things I've ever been through. And I can tell you that in the middle of it, I had no idea the significance of what God was going to do there. just felt really hard. And at times, to be honest with you, didn't feel like God was around. didn't feel like God was really present with me in it. But in remembering, And looking back on what God was up to there, I see in the voices and lives of people who surrounded me, who grieved with me, who loved me. I see in the years since the ways that I've been able to enter into other people's suffering differently because of what I've been been through. I see all of the things that God has made me passionate for in my life. Many of them arose from that situation. And that's not because that situation was good. It was not. It was terrible. But that situation was formed and used by God to do something powerful in my life. And now I become a more hopeful person, less cynical. I become a more gracious person and less legalistic. I become a more loving person, not someone who's hateful, hopefully. Some of you are like, I don't know about those things, right? You should have seen me a decade ago, right? God has shaped bits of my story and my remembering is the only thing that allows me to see that. I couldn't see it in the moment. But remembering helps me get clarity on what God has been doing, the story that God has been writing in the midst of my distress. So remembrance helps us see our distress by naming it clearly and helps us see it uh, by understanding what God has been doing in it. But that's not the only way it helps us see clearly. Remembrance also helps us see ourselves clearly. Did you notice the primary image that's used to describe humans in this text? It's in verse 7. Birds. We're birds. That's what the author wants to tell us here. And the bird he has in mind is not some brilliant, majestic, soaring eagle. He's thinking like a little sparrow. These tiny, feeble creatures that are utterly dependent. We are reliant on things outside of ourselves just to live. We all are dependent people. And again, we don't love to hear that sort of thing in this country. We actually really love to hear that we're self-sufficient, right? That we can be empowered to live our own independent lives and we don't really need anybody else to help us. We don't need anybody else to define things for us. In fact, the more self-sufficient you are, the more praised you are in our culture. The more self-identifying you are, the more praised you are in our culture. Friends, that's not what the scriptures are telling us. Scriptures are saying instead that we are dependent people. And I can tell you that the more of my life that I experience, the more I realize this is true. I'll be the first in line to say, I don't really need anybody else's help. Don't love asking for directions. right? Don't love acknowledging that I need you people in my life. I just like to think, oh, no, I kind of got it put together. That's my instinct. But the more I live and the more I experience, the more I'm like, whew, I need you guys. And I need God to give me clarity on what it means to live, to give me clarity on who I am. I can't live this life on my own. I am a dependent creature. I'm a little sparrow I need you to listen to me I need you to encourage me and you need the same from me we need that from God as well we need to be people who depend and rely upon God for life and here's what's maybe most striking in the middle of this passage because that bird image that makes us feel small and insignificant God undermines as well all throughout the scriptures but here too because God cares for even the smallest of creatures did you catch that Our insignificance does not mean that God overlooks us. In fact, our insignificance is only a greater testament to God's expanding love, that he still cares for us even in our insignificance. Jesus brings this up. That passage we read to start our time together and what we sang in uh, the song earlier, when his disciples are in the middle of distress, he tells them, look at the birds, look at the flowers, look at the grass. Your heavenly father cares for those things. And if he cares for those things, you think he won't care for you? This complex, incredible individual that's made in his image, you think he won't care for you? God cares for even the smallest of things, and that includes us in our feebleness and in our dependence. And so remembrance helps us see ourselves more clearly, helps us see ourselves as dependent people who are also infinitely beloved by God. But there's another image that helps us see ourselves clearly here. It's the snare, snare that the bird narrowly escapes here. The author likely has in mind in the ancient Near East there were uh, bird snares that were set up by fowlers or hunters. And they'd lay a net on the ground and then they'd put brush and sticks over it and then they'd put bait right in the middle. And spare hosts, naturally would be oh, food, right? Wander right in and the snare would snap around them. They'd capture birds this way. The author's reminding us that oftentimes distress, pain, and suffering serves as a snare in our lives. We get baited into thinking that our pain or our suffering or our anxiety or our anger or our heartache, that those things actually do define our story. That those things actually do get the last word. We get ensnared by the enemies around us, by all of the suffering around us. The world is always baiting us in this way. You guys, if you pay attention, the world is always telling you that your story will end in distress. Always. If this next political candidate gets elected that I don't like... Distress, No hope. If you live below a certain dollar amount, no hope, right? If you don't have this thing in your life, no hope. You'll get defined by your emotions in a given moment, by your fear, by your anxiety, and the world will capitalize on it. It'll trap you in it so that those things get final word. Our stories can become defined by our distress and we can fail to see the ways that God has been working in the midst of it. And so, Not only are we reliant and dependent creatures, but we also are creatures who can get baited really easily. And we have to continuously remember what God has done and who God is in order to avoid the bait. So what in your life is bait right now? What's the thing? What's the issue? What's the anxiety? What's the fear? What's the distress that's threatening to ensnare you? Threatening to say that this is what your story is and this is how it's going to end. The snare here is helping us see ourselves more clearly by showing us that there's a way out. There's a way out of the ways that the world baits us into hopelessness and despair. So remembrance helps us clarify our suffering, see our suffering clearly, see what God is doing in the midst of it, and then it helps us clarify ourselves who we are and the ways that we can maybe get trapped by other messages in the world. But there's a third way that remembrance helps us see more clearly. It helps us see God more clearly. Notice there's only one way that the psalmist sees distress, freedom from distress, getting ended. By the loving and gracious hand of God. That's the thing that frees the author from distress. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's what it says in verse 8. And it's interesting that they include the Lord who made heaven and earth. there, right? Why, Why the Lord who made heaven and earth? What he's saying here is that there is nothing in heaven or earth that can prevent God from bringing life to you. There is nothing that can stand in the way of God bringing you the life you were made for. Redemption and restoration are available and no mountain can't be moved. No river can't be split. No enemy can't be defeated because this God is committed to you. There's nothing that can stop this God from bringing life. Friends, distress and suffering never get the last word when we bring them to God. They never will. And the immensity of our distress, and it is immense, the things we feel are immense, right? We name them clearly. But that immensity never overcomes the immensity of a God who longs to heal them. This is a God who longs for each and every one of you to have full and free and beautiful and good lives. And it's a God who made heaven and earth, who formed the boundaries in everything. That God can't be stopped by your distress. God is for us. And if right now in your life you find that hard to believe, if it sounds impossible that God really is that way, if it sounds like your distress is too immense, three words for you. Look to Jesus. Because the God that this psalmist is talking about here is so committed to each and every one of us, so committed to bringing life in the midst of a world of death and distress that he took death and distress head on. He became human. And do you notice how much death and distress he faced when he lived? He lived under the thumb of oppression, when he was born. He was a refugee, forced to flee his home. He was a day laborer who was overlooked by society. He was an insignificant man from a no-name town. He was rejected by his friends and neighbors. He was ignored by those he loved. He He grieved when he lost friends. He was brutally executed in the public by the cops. That's the Jesus that we follow. That's the God that the psalmist is talking about. There's no distress and no despair that that God will not step into in order to bring you life. And that's a God who left distress and death and suffering in the grave. He left it there. This is a God who rose so that we could rise out of it, a God who brought life so that we might have life. Friends, Jesus is the perfect imprint, the identical nature of God in human flesh so that we can see him and know who he is. And so if ever there's a time in your life where it feels like distress is infringing upon you, where it feels like the waves are too big, remember the person who grabbed your wrist the person who grabbed the wrist of every person, the person of Jesus. Look to him in your distress and allow him to navigate through it with you and bring life on the other side because your distress and your suffering don't have to define you. There's a different story that God has written in Jesus. And that story is one that you can step in by bringing every part of yourself before him, by being honest and open and authentic in prayer, by remembering when we do that, God will give us clarity on our distress. He'll give us clarity on ourselves, and will give us clarity on who he is in the midst of it all. And when we do that, when we remember that story, that's what we do every week here together at Midtown. When we remember that story, we become different sorts of people. We leave this room changed sorts of people. There's a world out there with headlines about distress, about death and pain and suffering, and that those things are going to get the last word. But we know a different story. And we go into the world with that different story that's changed us. We become people because we've remembered They become forces of love and grace and peace and life in the world. That's why we do what we do, friends. This church is not for its own sake. It's to go past these windows, to declare to the world the true story of what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus does with distress. We are people who practice remembrance. Let's pray.